Good morning. Is anybody doing uh, their first one day sit here at Zen Center? Welcome, welcome. So today I, um, we're talking about um, compassion. So one thing I want to mention before we start, before I start talking is um, the talk um, is going to go a little longer than a normal period of zazen, at least the way we sit here at Zen Center, which is um, usually 30-minute periods. So I want to welcome everyone um, to move if they need to move. So we are practicing listening very deeply to moments of suffering. And um, so even as we listen to the talk, you can practice this compassion. And if you hear a signal from your body um, that you might need to move, what I would ask you to do is just first take a deep breath, kind of acknowledge and stop for a moment, acknowledge what is in need of movement, and then um, quietly and slowly make the move. So, so I just want to give you that permission. And, um, <clears throat> and as I was um, coming up, getting ready to bow, I had this thought pop into my head, which is, um, this is this thing called compassion, as we practice it in Buddhism, at least, is, is, is very bold, is like one of the, one, is the most radical act a human being can do, as well as the most natural. So I'm excited to talk about it today. And um, and I was really looking forward to um, just quietly sitting for the day. And then when the rain came and the cool weather, I was like especially excited. I think that's like the perfect conditions for a sit. So I want to start off with a poem by a Zen poet and Zen monk called Ryokan. Some of you may have heard this poem before. When I see the misery of this world, their sadness becomes mine. Oh, that my monk's robe were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. Nothing makes me more happy than the vow to save everyone. What can I accomplish? Although not yet a Buddha, let my monk's body be the raft to carry sentient beings to the other shore. And so as soon as I read this vow, my heart starts to open up. So the talk is about compassion, but the talk is also about suffering. And um, it seems almost cliche to start off a talk saying life is about suffering. 
but to really take that in that every life includes so much pain that there is no one who's born into this life that doesn't feel physical pain, emotional pain, navigate disappointment, oftentimes harm to our spirit and to our bodies, and tremendous loss. In the history of human civilization has sadly always included violence, domination, oppression of other humans, of other species, and even of the earth itself. And we can take this in intellectually, or we can take it in here. And now, it feels as if the world is really, truly on fire. And uh, I'm also a a psychotherapist, so I think in terms of psyches. And it feels to me that um, for all of us, and every human psyche on this planet, there is some recognition, conscious or unconscious, of the level of danger we are in. And to even imagine that is, is, um, is enormous. And Really, if I, if I have anything to say today, it is that uh, our practice is how do we use, how do we cultivate this um, capacity to be with that kind of suffering? It seems impossible. And that all of those things that create so much suffering are actually the the um, things that close us down to what we need to open up the most. So our pain, our hurt, our disappointment, the way people have um, failed us or, or dominated us or ignored us. Our natural response as human beings, as a kind of intelligent being, is to kind of contract against that. So in a way, what's so radical is that we're asking ourselves to do the opposite of what our bodies and minds want to do. We want to find ground. We want to feel stable and safe again. We want to cut off what feels so uncomfortable. So in Buddhism, we say that our natural birthright, who we are if we're not doing all of that, what naturally arises if we Um, can get out from underneath all of this is that our natural state of being is compassion and wisdom. And uh, what we're doing is, in this practice, we're asking ourselves to come home to ourselves, to our heart, to our birthright. 
So it's, it's uh, an act of um, regaining our dignity as human beings. And then when we regain our dignity, offering that dignity to others. As the Dalai Lama puts it, um, make our own heart our temple. So what would it be like to walk around with your heart as your temple? So I want us there, it's interesting to um, give a talk on compassions. Um, because it's like giving, a, in Buddhist literature, like giving a talk on air. I mean, it's everywhere. Every part of the Buddhist teachings are, and especially in the Mahayana tradition, our tradition is imbued with um, this, this bird with two wings, compassion and wisdom. Everywhere, it's everywhere. So I wanted to start off in one of the um, oldest uh, indications of it called the Brahma Baharas, or the Divine Abodes. And this is an ancient meditative tradition that was actually predated Buddhism, came from the Vedic tradition, and has also been, been passed along to other traditions like Hinduism. So the, so the divine abodes are basically a path to awakening. If we take up these things, it will allow us to regain that dignity I spoke about. But they're also um, the qualities of what an awakened being looks like. So these probably are familiar to you, but I want to name them. Um, the first is, and, and they all kind of go together. If you can listen, you can see them as these jewels that um, reflect each other and support each other. So the first is loving kindness or metta, which is an intention of goodwill and happiness for all beings. The second is equanimity, upeka which is seeing equality in all beings. So a non-hierarchical way of being with phenomenon, where you don't, um, you don't uh, favor one thing over another. You allow everything to be equally cared for, equally attended to, equally valued. The third is sympathetic joy, or mudita which is enjoying the happiness and good fortune of all beings. And um, I, as I was reading them, I, I, I read that one of the um, antidotes or the enemy of, of uh, sympathetic joy, the enemy of sympathetic joy, they all have their kind of enemies or opposites, is comparative mind. And I thought, oh, that's wonderful to know because I suffer very painfully from comparative mind, um, often particularly with my husband, who doesn't need any notes when he gives a talk. <laughs> so it's my first comparison. And, um, and you know, this, I, I, it just came to me. I, I didn't really see the, the pain or suffering that I cause when I engage in comparative mind. That the, I thought about the suffering to me, you know, that I'm putting myself, and we talk about this in the precepts, below someone. But really, I'm really harming poor Greg, you know, or anyone I do that to. I'm, 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 I'm having them have to defend or feel bad 
about just this beautiful quality of being that they are that I could celebrate. So it's, it's quite a humbling thing, but it also gives me this inspiration to practice that that suffering that I cause of this comparative mind is really causes harm. And then the fourth quality is compassion or karuna, which is this uh, wanting to alleviate the suffering of all beings, which we'll talk a little bit more about. So um, what we do here in this tradition is, and as part of the way of us really recognizing that we're not alone and we're not separate and that we're completely interdependent, and that everything that I'm saying here today, everything we're doing here came from um, and in being in gratitude to others. And uh, these are actually all the other people who've been practicing for 2,500 years in this tradition that offer us this kind of form. And um, my teachers and uh, all of you. But we use, um, we use these kind of archetypal images as a way of helping to evoke that, these what we call bodhisattvas or awakened beings. And uh, really, they are not, they are not like um, just a symbol, you know. Um, in Western society, we can, we can kind of reduce these down, things down to psychological construct. We see them as a live, actual being supporting us. Uh, and um, we take comfort in them, and we ask them to guide us. So uh, we can find inspiration in them. Uh, so today I want us to um, gather our hearts and minds around the teachings of the Bodhisattva of Compassion, Avalokiteshvara in India. And in India, Avalokiteshvara is so compassionate, they can change their form back and forth between female and male. And then when it comes to China, it's Guan Yin, who is the imagery depicted here behind us, um, supporting us, and then Kanan in Japan. And um, you know, maybe this is the equivalent of like when, when people who are Christian are suffering and they say, God, please help me, you know? <laughs> Greg and I both admitted that um, that we both, when we have real struggle, we automatically evoke these words that we say in, in the ceremony of taking the precepts. Please, Mahasafa, Bodhisattvas, please concentrate your hearts on me. <laughs> oh, I just feel better, right? There's <laughs> it's not just me up here doing this talk anymore. <laughs> So um, the etymology for compassion uh, comes from the Latin meaning of with suffering. And in Buddhism, you know, the, uh, this original term karuna also implies um, action. So it's not just being with the suffering, but then taking the action to uh, alleviate that suffering. So there's a feeling component to it but there's also an action component to it. And when we enter into a relationship with suffering, it is not in a removed way, and this is really important as we think about practicing on the cushion. We're not looking at suffering as if we are peering down into a microscope and studying suffering, 
like some, um, some object that we are apart from. But it's more like the uh, sensitivity of a parent with a newborn baby whose total devotion we are, we are paying attention to this baby with total devotion and care. So compassion has this quality of exquisite sensitivity. And it's a quality that we don't just think about or apply with our mental, with our mind, but with our body and with our heart. And the idea is that if we truly go towards this moment of suffering with our whole body, our heart, and our mind, as we meet that suffering, we enter into that suffering, the, the natural response is going to be to want to do something. And this is, again, the most natural act in the world. Somebody's walking by, they kind of slip and fall. You know, you're walking down the street, and you just see like four or five people just running towards to help pick that person up. So in a way, it, it's, it's not anything um, that isn't already a natural thing to do. <clears throat> so there's a famous teaching story, um, the Zen master Uman from South China in the 10th century. A monk came to him and asked, what is the highest, most profound teaching of all the Buddhas and patriarchs? And Uman replied, an appropriate response. So in Zen, the way we manifest compassion is with an appropriate response. So what does an appropriate response to our own suffering and other suffering look like? What does it feel like? How do we do it? How do we attend to a particular moment of suffering with the particular kind of energy and response that's actually going to alleviate that suffering. There's no formula, like I just do this all the time and this is what will happen. And um, Angel on Wednesday night was talking about oppression and liberation. And her um, suggestion to all of us was that the that one of, the way, one of the primary ways to help liberate beings is to sit on a cushion, <laughs> to start here. And that's what I want to talk about today. So we're going from this vast idea of Buddhism Bodhisattvas, and I just want to like kind of dig down a little bit and talk about it in the particularity of a Zazen practice because you're going to be practicing on the cushion today, this afternoon. If, if um, I was going to say, if you're lucky for the rest of your life. <laughs> this is how much we love Zazen. <laughs> so um, in Zen, you could say all of our practice are, are compassion forms. Zazen, precepts, practice roles. They are always um, giving us opportunities and clues on around how to practice compassion. And we say Zazen is the primary tool we use. And when we sit on our cushion, 
most of the time there's some suffering there. So we have this wonderful opportunity right at our, our fingertips as soon as we sit down. Our bodies are agitated, our minds are going crazy, we're having difficult emotions. Right, John? <laughs> Nodding. Yes, yes, yes. And um, so then here we are. And the posture of zazen itself is kind of an embodiment of, of being with. We're taught to observe and just be with the experience. You know, in a way, all of you, um, because you've come here and you've come to sit zazen, <clears throat> are already responding to a vow to alleviate suffering. There is no way anybody would willingly go down and sit zazen <laughs> if they weren't ready to engage in a relationship with suffering and find some way out of it. So you can be encouraged, no matter what your zazen practice feels like, that you're already enacting this bodhisattva vow. And um, so there's this very early alleviate a desire to alleviate it, but often, especially when we first start, we don't know how to do it. And I think continuing throughout our whole practice, you know, even 20 years into practice, I often um, forget what it means to be compassionate with my suffering. <clears throat> but we do build up a capacity over time by the way we attend to it. So we, we want to free ourselves, but we don't know how. <clears throat> so what we typically do, uh, I would say when we first start, but I would say throughout the whole practice, is we bring our conditioning to a moment of suffering. So we sit down, our mind starts to get agitated, and we, wanna, we want to do something with it. So the sense of separate self starts to act on that suffering. And what do we do? What are some condition ways that people have, some harmful or not so helpful ways that people have tried to be with moments of suffering? How about I'm going to just sit here with this rigidity and this endurance and, and, and push my body and insist on my body sitting still with a kind of um, really just harsh quality. Doubt. How about that? This is stupid. What am I doing here? <laughs> and all of those responses um, actually create, are the suffering that we're examining. So we actually have to. We need that suffering. It's, um, and, and it's like the field in which compassion gets um, understood and generated. So in fact, you know, we both, we need we need enough faith or wisdom, you know, enough wisdom to say, you know what, to keep doing it this way is a lot of suffering. I want to try something else. That's a form of wisdom. But in order to fully wake up, to move to what we call great compassion, in order for us to deeply realize those teachings of wisdom, of interconnectedness and dependent co-arising, our hearts also have to wake up. So we can't have just a heady understanding of emptiness. Our hearts have to be involved in it. And on the other side, in order to fully realize this great heart opening of love for all beings, we have to understand that who we think we are is not who we are, that we are not a separate self apart from everything else. So they have to, um, they rely on each other. 
And this is the compassion of great compassion. And the reason it's so radical when I said it's so radical is because what great compassion says is or asks us to do is to stand compassionately with others without preconditions, not based on needs, not based on preferences, not based on expectations, not based on whether someone treats you well or not. And again, this is what Angel was talking about. Not whether they're a friend or an enemy. So it's without an attachment to self. And um, and from this, we have this uh, this understanding. You know, we may not believe that that other people are worthy of our compassion, and we may not believe that we are actually each other. And it doesn't matter because we can practice uh, extending and caring for and being kind, even in the midst of all of our closure and all of our uh, disconnect. And we can call up that intention. And slowly, this becomes not just an intellectual, interesting thing, this idea of dependent co-arising. We actually feel it. And um, so what does a compassionate response look like? I really want to talk about this. Um, so what is an appropriate response to compassion? I want to read um, something from uh, Dogen, Instructions for the Zen Cook. And he describes the qualities needed for a Tenzo, which I would say is also the qualities needed for a Bodhisattva. He has this um, idea of what's called uh, Roshin. Is that how you say it? Roshin? R-O-S-C-H-I-N? Roshin which is a parent, attitude of a parent, or grandmotherly mind, or kind mind is interpreted. And here's what he says. In the same way that a parent cares for an only child, keep the three treasures, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, in your mind. A parent, irrespective of poverty or difficult circumstances, loves and raises a child with care. How deep is love like this? Only a parent can understand it. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> I think we can all understand it. A parent protects the children from the cold and shades them from the hot sun with no concern for his or her own personal welfare. Only a person in whom this mind has arisen can understand it. And only in one in whom this attitude has become second nature can fully realize it. This is the ultimate in being a parent. In the same manner, when you handle rice, water, or anything else, you must have the affectionate and caring concern of a parent raising a child. So, um, this reminds me of um, something that I was introduced to when I was doing my clinical practice. Um, to be a therapist, there were these videos that were taken, um, I might have mentioned them before, where um, to understand how parents and children attach, they would do videos, these, these kind of micro-second videos of a mother and a newborn. It was usually the mother. I think they were done maybe 20 years ago. And that what they would do is watch the kind of um, 
subtle movements of communication, nonverbal communication between a parent and, a, and an infant. And it was both beautiful and painful to watch. You would see that the mother might smile at the baby. And then the baby would smile back and like open up in delight. And then the mother would sensitively match that delight. Not too much delight, not too little delight, just match it. And then the child might get even more excited and, and start laughing. And then the mother might notice this tiny little movement of the baby's gaze down or a little turning away of the head. And in seeing that and sensing it, it might not even be conscious in the mother. The mother would quiet down her gaze, quiet down the energy in which she was bringing to that baby because she could sense it was getting slightly overstimulated. And there would be this shift. And then the baby would come back and eyes would open up and they'd be back in contact. So you just watch this. This is the kind of <coughs> sensitivity we're talking about. It was beautiful. And then there were other videos of mothers who, because of their own trauma, their own wounds, their own limitations, would not be able to engage in this way with their, with their infant. So um, they would either miss the signals and keep overstimulating the child, and the child would get more and more distressed, giving more and more, um, more and more distress signals. Or they might respond um, indifferently and turn away, or be harsh in response. And you could just see, <laughs> you could just see within 20 seconds, maybe a minute, this child starting to kind of getting. Um, trying to manage the, the distress that was coming up in their bodies. And then um, sometimes a despair just coming over them and a giving up. You know, you can just see their bodies kind of collapse a little bit. And again, you know, to me this just, I get heartbroken right away by the time I think about it. It's such a visceral um, moment of suffering and disconnection. And yet this is what happens all the time with us, with each other. Um, what we hear and um, when we're looking at social conditioning, these kind of microaggressions or this not noticing how we might be showing up in a way that causes harm to each other. But to start really just on our own cushion. You know, how do we respond to a moment of distress in our own bodies and mind? Are we like that attuned parent, you know, who if we have this scary, fearful thought coming up of, um, oh my God, you know, I can't do this, or um, this negative thought of like, I'm so stupid, you know? Do we offer, um, do we meet that with some tenderness and with some calming, with some reassurance, or, or with just a loving presence? Or do we inflame it? 
you know? Do we inflame the distress? Yes, and let me tell you all the ways that you're stupid right now, and I'll give you a whole bunch of memories, you know, to connect to. So this is, this is um, how we um, notice what causes suffering, and then learning through a deep being with the suffering what's an appropriate response. And I want to, um, I have to pause because I get excited and I lose a little contact with my body. So um, in Zen, we have lots of stories about these kinds of strange koans where um, Zen masters are cutting off monks' arms and legs. <laughs> you think, how is that compassionate? And um, there is actually this wonderful understanding that compassion doesn't always look like this um, tender moment between a parent and a child, but can look very fierce. And um, there's a, um, a woman, Lama, she's the, I think she was the first Lama um, in the West, Tibetan teacher Lama Alion, I think is how we pronounce her name. She just published a book on the empowered feminine, and she shares the teaching of this Tibetan feminine archetype of compassion and wisdom called the Dakinis, or the sky dancers. And I want to just share the imagery that she uses because this is also compassion. She explains, she can appear as a human being or as a deity, often portrayed as fierce, surrounded by flames, naked, dancing with fangs, and a lolling tongue, and wearing bone ornaments. She holds a staff in the crook of her left elbow, representing her inner consort, her internal male partner. In her raised right hand, she holds a hook knife, representing her relentless cutting away of dualistic fixation. She is compassionate and at the same time relentlessly tears away the ego. She holds a skull cup in her left hand at heart level, representing impermanence and the transformation of desire. She is an intense and fearsome image to behold. The Dakini is a messenger of spaciousness and a force of truth, presiding over the funeral of self-deception. So, Sometimes just being still with suffering is enough to ease it. You know, many times I've sat in zazen and my body's gotten quiet, my mind's gotten quiet, I can feel concentration stilling. And all of a sudden, when in that stillness my heart opens up, there's like a moment of suffering and, I, and the suffering comes up and, I, and my heart breaks open around that suffering and then I really feel this body and mind drop away. So sometimes stillness is enough. But I would say, um, sometimes we need more. And this is a little uh, unorthodox, I think, for pure zenis. But sometimes I think we need to add a little bit more to our practice, to add this love and kindness or metta to our practice. Because sometimes we're so agitated or the mind is taking over so much that we have to offer it this uh, loving kindness. And so a kind of imagining a response that soothes and comforts.
and we don't, you know, compassion is not like something we get perfect, but it's just an intention in a particular direction. And then sometimes what we need, what's compassionate for us in a period of zazen, is this kind of fierce no. You know, when our minds are obsessing, going over loop after loop after loop, and wandering here and wandering there, sometimes just like stop. You know, Shanti David talks about like guard the sense doors. You are not coming in. I am not going there again. <laughs> I'm not revisiting this injury another time, right? Because it's keeping us from actually settling in. And again, I want to say um, that there is this opportunity, not just in Zazen, but as soon as you walk out the door, as soon as we walk out the door, that there is this chance to really have, have fun embodying um, practices of loving kindness or of compassion as we, as we walk around the streets. And I have been actually doing this. I've been, for the last month or so, I've been taking up this practice of loving kindness over and over and over, all day long. Every time I can remember it, I will wish, mostly wish myself well, wish myself health and ease and comfort. And it doesn't matter you know, whether I feel it or not or whether it feels a little road. I just keep doing it every moment. And then um, I will also do that to others. So we can do that with each other. And there's always a, a kind of three-part, four-part point to the loving kindness. We can offer it first to ourselves because we we have to get this own we have to get our own nervous system relaxed enough and softened enough to open our hearts when we do that we can offer it to people that we love and care about deeply who care about us then we go to neutral people and um, this is a really interesting practice we typically ignore the neutral people and um, I want to read you something about neutral people. Maybe this will be an inspiration for you. But um, somebody gave me a lovely book called um, Joy. And it has all these poems about joy. So Greg sent me this one. I said, Greg, um, can you look in this book and find the poem about toilets? <laughs> and he did for me. So uh, this, is, this is an incredible idea about where how compassion can go everywhere. It's called, it's nine minutes, thank you. It's called plumbing. I don't, this seems very strange to do, but I want to do it. Plumbing is so intimate. He hooks up your toilet. He places a wax ring under the vitreous seat where you, your shit will go. You are grateful for him, to him. He is a god, this is about the plumber. He is a god with wrenches a quiet young man using a flame torch. He shoulders the joints. He crawls through your dusty attic over the boxes of doll furniture, the trains, the ripped sleeping bags, the beetle posters, the camp cots, the dishes, the bed springs, to wire up the hot water tank. And you admire him as you would St. Francis for his simple acceptance of how things are. And the water comes like a miracle Every time in the night with your bladder full, you rise from the bed. And instead of the awful stench of the day before, and perhaps even the day before that, 
In a moment of pure joy, you smell nothing but the sweet, wait, you can get it all on one page. <laughs> the sweet mold of an old house and your own urine as it sloshes down with the flush. And you feel comfortable taken care of like some rich Roman matron who had just been loved by a boy. So this is, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about great compassion. How could we have an, a heart or a mind so open that we can appreciate that? You know, so many things we ignore as we get very um, compelled, right, by, by, by great feelings of love by those we care about and great feelings of enmity and hatred for those that are enemies. And, and then we ignore this huge field that is a, 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 a ground for the cultivation of gratitude and compassion and love. And whether we can actually do it or not is not the point. So I've said this, I say this all the time, we can be open to what's closed. Our hearts are closed, our minds are closed. I hate this person. This guy should go to jail. Yes, we can be with those feelings of suffering that that generates. But we can see if there is this possibility that there is another way to respond and take care of this being who we hate so much that actually might allow us to um, transform ourselves and this person or set of people in a way that goes back to our vows. So uh, the Dalai Lama was, um, uh, had a meeting with uh, some folks at the turn of the century, the turn of the last century. And these um, people came to him and offered five questions. What were, who they believe were the five most important questions of the next millennium. And the five questions were, how do we address the widening gap between rich and poor? How do we protect the earth? How do we educate our children? How do we help oppress countries and oppress peoples of the world? And how do we bring spirituality, a deep caring for one another through all disciplines of life? And the Dalai Lama said that all, all five questions fall under the last one. That if we have true compassion in our hearts, our children will be educated wisely. We will care for the earth. And those who have not will be cared for. And that does not mean we don't take action. You know, but that, so because to remember that the compassion is the feeling and the wish that gets evoked through the heart and then the action follows. So he, the Dalai Lama, offered these practices and I'll end with sharing those with you. So here's what he suggests that everyone in the group and everyone who, who could, who in the group to share it with as many people as they can. And again, um, this sounds, I have deep conditioning. <laughs> I come from a very cynical family. I, I mean, I just can hear them in my head. This is so ridiculous. You know, it's so sappy, it's so silly. And that's part of the conditioning that I have to keep bumping up against, that this idea of compassion is somehow 
how kind of um, dismissed as um, ineffectual, as naive, as um, weak. I really don't believe that's true. Uh, and it's, um, to me, for me, having practiced in this much more intense way over the last month, this is going to be my practice for the rest of my life. I'm going to keep this in the forefront. And I trust, you know, with the, with the hundreds of thousands of teachings we can find through the sutras and through Dharma talks, I'm just holding on to this one because it's, it's, it's offered me more um, ease and more openness and more capacity and stability to respond to difficulties than anything I've, I've, I've worked with so far. And um, so it feels pretty magical to me at this point. So, and if it's good enough for the Dalai Lama, it's good enough perhaps for us. So he says, spend five minutes at the beginning of each day remembering we all want the same things, to be happy and to be loved. And we are all connected to one another. So this is a practice. Spend five minutes breathing in, cherishing yourself, breathing out, cherishing others. If you think about people you have difficulty cherishing, extend your cherishing to them anyway. During the day, extend that attitude to everyone you meet. Practice cherishing every person, plumber, super, person giving you a ticket at the car, whoever. Important people in your life, people that you dislike. Number four, continue the practice no matter what happens or what anyone does to you. And he says that this practice of cherishing can be taken very deep if done wordlessly. So you're, you're, you may not feel it in your heart. It might be very... Um, it might be very uh, empty or dull or kind of hardened. Uh, there's a Sangha member who says, I have found so much power in the intention to be kind to myself. I often don't feel like being kind, but just even remembering that I value kindness can help, and help to open the door to feeling loved. My most frequent prayer is, God, help me remember my intention to love myself no matter what to be kind to myself no matter what, to respect myself no matter what. Yes, it's repetitive, but I need reminding. Because as soon as I start to feel bad, kindness is the first thing I forget. The key to kindness is just doing it or even just wanting to do it regardless of how it makes you feel. Sometimes kindness makes you feel sick or empty. Sometimes it may open up the deep sense of being loved. Either way, holding on to the intention will eventually have an effect. The muscle gets stronger. And it also allows us to um, be free of self, that this self can start to kind of be washed away in this wider, vast understanding of connection. So in the Lotus Sutra, there's a passage that says, in this triple world, all is my domain. The living beings in it are all my children. So what would it be like to practice treating every single thing, every single being, every single person, every plant, every ant, 
every toilet <laughs> as if it was your cherished child. And even more than that, as the Metta Sutta says, even at the risk of her life, a mother watches over and protects her only child. So in these choices of whether to open or close, um, we really kind of, and it is, and you can almost feel it. You know, I, I, when, I, when I'm having a fight with Greg, or wanting to have a fight with Greg, <laughs> because I feel so frustrated, I have this moment to choose, you know, of do I want to like stay in this closed yet empowered position of right? Or do I want to like go into the pain? It's actually quite painful sometimes to let that go and to soften and open into connection. And sometimes I can't, and then I have to just be with that. But uh, we can choose that. And you know, returning to love to my husband is easy, but how might it be, and what kind of, what kind of ways would I extend myself you know, to those that, uh, with Greg, I would, my dogs, I would die for them. Can I imagine feeling this kind of thing and imagining dying for you, <laughs> for you, for somebody that I happen to see passing along the street, you know, who maybe falls into in front of a train or something, you know? So this is why this is so radical and so wonderful. So thank you. Thank you, Erica. May our intention equally... Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.